And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club, where we lied to you and said that we weren't going to release an episode this week and are now releasing an episode this week. We put it on our our episode schedule, so some of you might know. (laughs) It's true. Uh... This is going to be a little bit different than our usual programming this week because this is an episode entirely dedicated to responding, I guess, to the intense and rightful and justified protests that are happening across the country this week for Black Lives Matter. Um, Kind of just Harmony and I using what little platform we have to talk about calling in other white people to the anti-racism ideal yes i'm it's hard because we are both white girls but we didn't want to stay silent on this matter and if you follow our social media you may have noticed that we've been trying to post resources for people and it's something i think that both maggie and i feel strongly about and want to help contribute to in whatever way we can so today we are reading an article by roxanne gay or we're analyzing an article by Roxane Gay, not in our typical uh, literature analysis lens, but kind of using it to make sense of what is happening right now and how we can move forward. And the article is called, Remember, No One is Coming to Save Us. Which is a response to an article she wrote a couple of years ago that was titled, No One is Coming to Save Us, about this one specifically, the tagline is that it's about the fact that, you know, the world is waiting for a vaccine, a cure for coronavirus, but Black people are kind of waiting in perpetuity for a cure for racism. Usually we talk at the end of the episode about whether or not something that we read is feminist, but this time we decided that we wanted to kick off the episode discussing the fact that anti-racism work is inherently feminist and intersectional feminism is the only way forward to changing the world because if your feminism isn't for anyone then it's for no one yeah your feminism should be for everyone and we've touched before on this podcast about our feelings towards hierarchy and how it is all kind of intersectional when we're talking about class and culture and race and gender all of these things are used to put people down in a systematic way And to make it so that we have a single ruling class of oppressors, not to get too Marxist on you, but (laughs) it's important that we talk about race because we are a feminist podcast, because there are women who are affected by race and because it does affect us all. It makes, I mean, it even affects white people negatively to a certain extent because we are viewing and perpetuating violence and so in order to be truly feminist we have to tear down all of these barriers and try to be allies and recognize when we have 
privilege and in what ways and how we can use that to potentially be helpful rather than being complicit. Absolutely. And Harmony and I obviously don't have all of the answers here. This isn't how to guide necessarily so much as it is just kind of like an open conversation about racism and the work that we're personally doing to be more anti-racist and is going to be the majority of which us quoting from people who are smarter than we are and who know more about this topic than we ever could. I see the phrase going around a lot, I can never understand but I stand and I think that that's kind of where a lot of this podcast episode is coming from right now yeah do you want to incorporate your quote i can i so i read a book this week that fucking blew my mind and it wasn't it's a memoir called untamed by glennon doyle which is getting a lot of buzz and hype right now i can see why because it really just like struck a chord with me and Glennon Doyle is a white author who's part of the lgbtqia community and she has a whole section in the book called racists where she talks about what an experience where she was accused of being racist and how she responded to that and how it deepened her work into anti-racism that I think especially as two you know white ladies doing anti-racist work really sort of sets a stage for this kind of intersectionality and the way that we need to change the how we talk and think about racism fair warning it's a really long excerpt I'm not gonna lie but I I just think that all of it is useful so I'm gonna be reading from pages 214 to 218 in Untamed not all of it I will be skipping parts so if there's parts that seem like they don't flow correctly it's because I I don't have it in me to just read four pages (laughs) Um, but I am gonna read a majority of it because I, I, I think that it's useful so starting on page 214 of Untamed night when I was growing up, my family would sit down on our basement couch and watch the evening news together. It was the time of the war on drugs. I lived in the suburbs, but in the cities, things were clearly terrible. The news insisted that crack was everywhere, and so were so-called crack babies and welfare queens. Night after night, we watched young black bodies thrown to the ground, rounded up en masse, pushed into cop cars. After the nightly news, the show Cops aired. Along with millions of other American families, my family would sit and watch cops together. Every night, I'd see mostly white cops arresting mostly poor black men for entertainment. We would eat popcorn while we watched. Then, skipping down a little bit, they sat in a large room with about a hundred other white folks. A woman stood up to bring the meeting to order. She announced that she and a few other women had decided to respond by sending care packages to the predominantly black school across town. She suggested that they break up into groups and choose items to collect. The room exhaled in relief. Yes, outward action. Performance instead of transformation. Our insides are safe. My father was confused and frustrated. He raised his hand. The woman called on him. My dad stood and said, I'm not here to make packages. I'm here to talk. I was raised in a racist southern town. I was taught a lot of things about Black people that I've been carrying in my mind and my heart for decades. I'm starting to understand that not only are these lies, but they're deadly lies. I don't want to pass this poison down to my grandkids' generation. I want this stuff out of me, but I don't know how to get it out. I think I'm saying that I've got racism in me and I want to unlearn it. I am a feminist, but I was raised in a sexist culture. 
I was raised in a world that tried to convince me through media, religious organizations, history books, and the beauty industry that female bodies are worth less than male bodies, and that certain types of female bodies, thin, tall, young, are worth more than other types of female bodies. The images of women's bodies for sale, the onslaught of emaciated women's bodies held up as the pinnacle of female achievement, and the pervasive message that women exist to please men is the air I breathed. I lived in a mine and the toxin was misogyny. I got sick from it, not because I'm a bad sexist person, but because I was breathing misogynistic air. I became bulimic and it's taken me a lifetime to recover. Self-hatred is harder to unlearn than it is to learn. It is difficult for a woman to be healthy in a culture that is still so very sick. It is the ultimate victory for a woman to find a way to love herself and other women while existing in a world insisting that she has no right to. So I'm working hard at health and wholeness every day. I'm an advocate for women's equality because at my roots, I know the truth. I know what my body is for. It's not for men's use. It's not for selling things. It's for loving and learning and resting and fighting for justice. I know that everybody on this earth has equal, unsurpassable worth. And yet, I still have this poison in me. I talk to women all the time about how the misogyny pumped into the air by our culture affects us deeply. How it corrupts our ideas about ourselves and pits women against each other. How that programmed poison makes us sick and mean. How we all have to work hard to detox from it so that we don't keep hurting ourselves and other women. Women cry and nod and say, yes, yes, me too. I've got misogyny in me and I want it out. No one is terrified to admit that she has internalized misogyny because there is no morality attached to the admission. No one decides that being affected by misogyny makes her a bad person. When a woman says she wants to work to detox herself from misogyny, she is not labeled a misogynist. It is understood that there is a difference between a misogynist and a person affected by misogyny who is actively working to detox. They both have misogyny in them programmed by the system, but the former is using it to wield power to hurt people, and the latter is working to untangle herself from its power so she can stop hurting people. But then when I bring up racism, the women say, but I'm not racist. I'm not prejudiced. I was raised better than that. We are not going to get the racism out of us until we start thinking about racism like we think about misogyny, until we consider racism as not just a personal moral failing, but as the air we've been breathing. How many images of black bodies being thrown to the ground have I ingested? How many photographs of of jails filled with black bodies have I seen? How many racist jokes have I swallowed? We have been deluged by stories and images meant to convince us that black men are dangerous, black women are dispensable, and black bodies are worth less than white bodies. These messages are in the air, and we've just been breathing. We must decide that admitting to being poisoned by racism is not a moral failing, but denying we have poison in us certainly is. (sighs) That was the longest I've ever read aloud from a book for. (laughs) It was beautiful. Do you want to talk about that, about having that poisonous racistness in us? I mean, I think we should, right? Because, like, that's the whole point of anti-racism work is that it starts with you and yourself and the fact that you have to admit that your breathing and thinking and being exposed to racist structures every single day. And so you need to do the work to untangle yourself from that. And you can't help other people really do it unless you're on that journey yourself. And I think also importantly, it's not like an end goal where suddenly you're not racist anymore because that just doesn't 
that doesn't exist. There's no like platonic ideal of that. There's just yeah. continuing to do the work and then you die, which is how most of it <laughs> works. <laughs> that is very true. Yeah. And I think too, it, the idea that there is an end goal out there ends up being counterproductive because if you're constantly just trying to make yourself like the least racist you can be, then you could end up perpetuating white silence, right? Because then you're not ever going into action. Like to a certain extent, we all know, most of us know in this world, and I, I assume our listeners know, right? Like racism is bad, right? That is where you start. And then you have to look at it and be like, how am I helping to hold up this system? Yeah. And I think that something that struck me about that passage is the fact that there is such an intense moral feeling around like being called a racist and that makes Mm -hmm. people scared and then it makes themselves small because then they refuse to kind of put themselves in positions where they could be wrong yeah but you have to just be willing to be wrong and you have to be willing to apologize when you're wrong and then you have to be willing to accept the fact that people don't have to accept your apology when you're wrong like it's your job to just sort of take your failings and move forward there's been a lot of, I think, well-intentioned but ill-advised conversation, wrong conversation in my opinion, about like the whole nobody is born a racist situation. And like, sure, you're not born a racist, but it's indoctrinated into you from the moment that you look at your eyes and most likely see a white doctor, right? Like, I think it's something like 85% of all doctors are white. Don't quote me on that. That might not be the exact number, but it's like, it's high like that, you know? It starts from that very moment that you like take your first breath and then it just keeps going. And capitalism doesn't help it, right? Like capitalism just spoon feeds it into our mouths by creating this dichotomy where Gay talks about this in her article where like they paint pictures that everything is okay and that we're coming together. The companies do. But at the root of that, right? Like capitalism is based on hierarchy and there needs to be a villain essentially to keep hierarchies in place. Mm -hmm. And when the villain becomes the rich white men at the top of the hierarchy, that's when it'll crumble. So they spend a lot of time and a lot of money trying to make you think that poor black people are the enemy instead. Yeah, and that's a historical fact. Like, that is what they did in the Reagan era. There have been multiple articles, and we will try to link some of them to you in the show notes, that talk about active campaigns for you to see Black people differently and for you to fear Black people. Because Black people have been an economic... They're good for capitalism because they have made up America's workforce since the beginning. Yeah. And done. So, like, they're, even though Black people are overcoming, and even though lots of people do end up getting college degrees now, like, the system wants to keep them down. And a bunch of other people do, but like, the system wants to have that workforce where people are not paid well enough to advocate for themselves and are forced into hard and unfair labor and undercompensated labor on top of that yeah yeah that article was really interesting and it's interesting 
to talk about the idea that we learn racism as soon as we're born, because there are sometimes you see like memes on Facebook where there's like little kids and they're like, I don't see color. And I see people all races sharing stuff like that because it is a nice sentiment, right? But it is kind of a like the idea of like the little boy who's white and the little black boy pretending like they're twins because they don't genuinely see a difference. But yeah, I know in my experience, that wasn't true for me. And like, I grew up in a white community and at five, like there was only one black kid in my class and was noticing racial differences. And I feel like even within that insulated community, I was still picking up on racism and on like the cultural stigma that was being perpetuated in the 90s as to what Black people were. Yeah. And I think also the thing with I don't see color, right, is the fact that it's just invalidating the experience of people who are subject to and live with racism every single day. You know, like, sure, maybe it doesn't affect your relationships. Although I say that with heavy skepticism, because microaggressions are real and harmful and are also perpetuated by this racist system that we're all indoctrinated in but you are harming people when you tell them that i don't see your struggle and i don't see your plight and i don't and therefore i also don't actively fight to change any of that right like yeah And it's difficult, it's difficult when you are called a racist. Like, I get it. I think I, maybe not in those words, but like, I've been called out for doing racist things and I don't like it. And I do get defensive. Like, I think that is a very natural human urge, but it is also our job as we grow to recognize that like, it's okay to get called out and that's somebody trying to educate you. And yeah, I don't know. I, I fought with an English teacher from high school recently about something he had posted on Facebook. And another person commented being like, you only have this perspective because you are a white man. And he got really defensive, which is interesting because he is not a defensive person. And like we were able to have a civil discussion like he is not one of he's one of those people who I think is open to being called out for the most part. But he was like, how can you call me a racist? I believe in this, this, and this. And so, yeah, I think I think that we need to recognize that just because we're not the pre- people out there shooting, it doesn't mean that we're not complicit or capable of committing microaggressions or of having ideologies that are ultimately ha- harmful. I know that, like, even a few years ago, I had ideologies to a certain extent that I don't have today that... I don't know, about like violence, right? (laughs) We're here, a a lot of us are trying to tell people that like the violence isn't the issue and what's happening in terms of violence on the protester side. The violence is the issue, especially on the police side. But like a few years ago, I would have been against protesting violently. And now I'm not. So I think that we all just kind of need to learn and grow. Yeah, for sure. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, I feel the same way. Like, I think everyone does. As you as you learn and grow, you look back on things that you thought like three years ago, five years ago, and you're like, wow, I really don't think those things anymore because I've evolved as a human. I'm sure that in a couple of years, we're going to come back to this podcast episode and be like, 
oh, these sweet children. <laughs> they're out yeah. there trying their best, but they're wrong. Before we talk about the text, along those lines, I kind of wanted to ask you, as white people, and for other people who might be having the same question, what do you think the role of empathy in terms of education is for people, we we talked about this a little bit last podcast, and in terms of education for people who are ignorant, because I feel to a certain extent, like part of it is our responsibility to to be more civil and less angry when we're trying to educate our white peers, right? Because we shouldn't have to put that on voices that are more oppressed than we are and having to deal with this actively every day. And then part of me is like, yeah, but then we're we're upholding white fragility and I don't know. I don't know. Like what what do you think? And I think that also kind of relates to the fact that a lot of white people, at least where I am in New York City, are going out there and protesting violently, which again, I'm not super opposed to right now because of a lot of things, but I also think that like I've I've seen instances in which they have gone and made it unsafer, unsafe for black bodies because they are protesting violently and there have been a lot of peaceful protests that have turned violent because of rage, and I don't think that's all white people. But I mean, like, I, I think that some of the rage is coming from Black voices. And I think that that's really understandable right now. But yeah, is it our job? It's not necessarily, I feel like, our job to break stuff. And so I wanted to know what your your perspective is on white rage in regards to racism without upholding white fragility. Yeah, so I feel like I should just claim here that I did an entire advanced degree based on a thesis that was about the fact that empathy makes us better people. Mm-hmm. So I think that empathy is kind of at the at the root of a lot of change. I think that there's a couple of things within that. That it is not on the onus of marginalized people to make themselves into empathetic characters or to mm-hmm. perpetuate or create stories that only show people in a certain life a light so that they are more empathetic characters for white people to digest essentially and then feel good about themselves the onus is on us to look at the context of 400 years of slavery and oppression and then understand where rage and violence comes from in that And then to act. But I think the key is that you have to, no matter how angry you are because you feel empathy towards Black people and Black bodies, you have to follow. It is not our, like, it's not our job to lead here. I'm really pro and frankly always have been violent protest. But in especially these cases where I'm against it is where it's white people just going off the rails, right? Like... It's not your job as a white protester to come out there and start fucking shit up and breaking things. Like, if that is the direction that the protest takes because that's the direction that Black leadership has decided that it should take, understandably so, that's one thing. But, like, your job as an empathetic person is to follow directions, almost, you know? Like, to listen more and talk less. Like, that's the that's the role of empathy to me and empathy doesn't just have to be like 
hard facts, right? It's also reading fiction by Black authors and things like that and understanding deeply the inner lives of the people around you, you know? And I think that there's also something that we have to point out here, which is that it's deeply ironic, right? That like lots of what we're talking about right now is like, listen more, talk less when we're on a podcast, you know? Yeah. All we do is talk. But that's why specifically when I was thinking about this episode, it's centered a lot, like I was saying before, on things that people who are smarter than us and know more than us about these topics (laughs) have have said you know like these aren't either of our original ideas necessarily they're ideas that we believe in strongly but in that way i'm trying to follow the lead of black people in my community you know so i think that that's where i end up on the empathy thing that like it is vital but you can't let your empathetic feelings ever take over and overcome what black people are telling you that you need just because just because you're empathetic isn't enough like you have to then use that and wield it in a smart and well-informed way no i agree with that a lot do you think it's necessary when we're trying to educate like trump supporters or people who don't share our same values i don't know i've been running around my house every time I work out going bash the bash, bash the bash. But is that actually helpful for me as a white person or should I be taking it upon myself to try and come at it with these other people from a place of understanding? And where do we draw the line, right? Like I can talk to my English teacher who might be somewhat misinformed, but who has I think a good heart and probably wants to help in his own way, right? Versus somebody who is like, no, pro-white life. Yeah, I think that that's a really complicated question because I think that ultimately, if people feel like you aren't even trying to understand where they're coming from and why they feel the way that they do, they're just going to feel attacked and get defensive. And I think that for the most part, that's not where conversation and change happens. But then I also think that, like, there is a certain point where you can't be empathetic with something that's just, like, inherently wrong either, you know? There's the a quote from the Roxanne Gay article that says, I write similar things about different Black lives lost over and over and over. I tell myself I am done with this subject. Then something so horrific happens that I know I must say something, even though I know that the people who truly need to be moved are immovable. They don't care about Black lives. They don't care about anyone's lives. They won't even wear masks to mitigate a virus for which there is no cure. And that really resonated with me, I think, in this question where it's like, at some point, you have to just shut the fuck up and stop talking and take action, even if it excludes other people who you wish would be included, right? Like... This nation is going to move forward (laughs) with or without those people. But if more of them joined this movement, there's going to be less casualties along the way. Not to get really dark, but I... I, 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 Um, The revolution is coming. Maggie just, like, went there. (laughs) Down with the bourgeoisie, please. I... Yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that, right? Like, and I think it also is different to be fair, when you're talking about, like, 
people who you know personally versus just like angry strangers Thank on the you. internet you know because it's yeah. like I can empathize with people in my life who I think are deeply wrong about a lot of things but I also feel like because I know them actually I have more sway with which to change their mind right like I think that that's where real empathy and real activism can happen is that it's not about being some like keyboard warrior frankly although I know that's bold terminology to use it's about (laughs) it's about local stuff right like it's about your own connections and your own web of people right and like trying to educate them as best as you can and point them towards people who just know more right like and I think that we all see this a lot of the times when we're talking to our parents so to speak right like um, or grandparents yeah where it's just like I love you and I think that deep down you're probably a good person but you believe and you perpetuate these things that are awful and make life awful for other people I think out of this deep capitalistic fear of the fact that if life gets better for other people yours is going to inherently get worse when that's just like Mm -hmm. not true you know so I think for me that's where like empathy happens most productively when talking to people who believe differently than you is when it's people in your actual life um with whom you might actually be able to sway over time and repeated conversation um yeah I don't know if that made sense no, that made a lot of sense. Um, thank you. I agree. I completely agree. I think that if there's a basis of love, then you already have a built-in something to go off of, like some sort of understanding versus the person who lives 3,000 miles away from you that you've never met, who does believe completely different things. I think that there's also um, an element of trust in those relationships as well that's really important right because it's like I'm going to talk to you about this but I trust that you're not going to like make me feel bad or stupid while we're having this conversation which is something that I really struggle with I was having an argument with someone I care about the other day I got so upset and worked up that I had to hand the phone to my husband because I felt like I was getting so frustrated that I was going to become mean um Mm -hmm. And he and I believe very similar things. So I, I literally just told him, I was like, I need you to like take over in this conversation for a second because I am at a point in this confrontation, which is something that I'm not good at to begin with, where like I'm about to ruin all of this by breaking this person's trust. Um, because sometimes I think you do need to really just slap people in the face with the truth, right? Like, but I also don't know how effective yeah how effective a tool that is all the time like sometimes it is right but I think a lot of the time when that happens it's about making the person who feels like they're in the right because they're on the side of justice feel better about themselves rather than actually trying to reach the person that they're talking to yeah okay do we want to get into the article because we're 32 minutes in yeah (laughs) for sure I mean, we've referenced it quite a few times now, but yeah. So this article is about the coronavirus pandemic as well as racism, which is really heartbreaking intersection right now of our world that, like, I don't think is really getting enough 
attention or rage, especially from the white community, about how disproportionately affected people of color in general, but especially Black people, are being affected by COVID for lists of reasons that go on longer than we have time for in this podcast but ultimately boils down to like we were talking about in the beginning like black people desperately want things to change and everyone else is sitting here saying i can't wait till things go back to normal you know yes 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 so that's kind of what this article brought out for me because we keep hearing a lot of well if you want things to change you got to vote in november and like yes absolutely vote in november But I know on a personal level, I'm really scared that we're going to vote for in November. Donald Trump's going to be out of office and then we're all going to get complacent again. And it is it means more for somebody who is black than it means for me. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then I think on top of that, right, like we're talking about voting as if it's actually going to change anything, whereas so much of the intense violence happening right now is under Democratic rule. Right. Like I live just outside of Seattle, which is one of the bluest cities in the nation with a blue governor and a blue mayor. And the use of tear gas and things like that has been so indiscriminate that it's getting into residential homes and affecting infants and people like that. Yeah, people here, cops here are just running into people with their cars. They're trapping people on bridges. Our mayor endorsed Fort Bernie Sanders. Our mayor is, he calls himself a progressive. He has a black daughter and he is still going out there saying that there is violence on both sides and that protesters need to stop antagonizing cops. Yeah. And so it's like, sure, I'm going to vote blue in November, but like in this day and age, blue means voting for a moderate at best who participated and still continues to participate in some really fucking heinous things, including war crimes. Like, so yeah, sure. I am going to go out there and vote in November because it's what I've got to do, but like real change doesn't really happen without all of the shit that's happening right now. Right? Like the civil rights act happened after six days of rioting after MLK was assassinated. Like, that's how change happens you know yeah and it's been longer than six days here and the most we've gotten is an up in charges for george floyd's death but george floyd is only one of the people like one of countless people and those are just people that we know about right that have gotten hashtags there is police brutality all over this country especially against people of color and So just putting away George Floyd's killer and the cops that were complicit in it that sat by, which we still don't have any guarantee is going to happen. It's going to be harder now that the charges have been upped, is not going to solve all of this. It's going to be legislative changes. So yeah, let's talk. So one thing about this article that made me depressed, and I get where it's coming from, and I'm not criticizing it at all, but she the ending was really hopeless. She was like, we're just going to keep on fighting and there's no there's no beacon of hope in sight, which is probably what's driven our country to this point. So like, do we, do we see a beacon in sight? I'm hopeful, but maybe that's because I have the privilege and I haven't been fighting this fight as long. And so I have like the emotional wherewithal to be right now. 
I don't know, man. I don't think I am hopeful, at least not for the generation of people who are alive right now. I'm hopeful for like a distant future. But I think about at work, we talk a lot about the fact that given the way rate of change is going and, and working right now, the data shows that it's going to take 202 more years of all of this bullshit before we achieve gender equality. We're already 400 years deep into this battle of racism. And so while I think that I am hopeful for things to improve, I wouldn't be surprised if the data about racial equality is even bleaker than that, to be perfectly honest with you. And I think that that's something that we have to really take to heart, is that we are powerless currently to end suffering. But what we can do is work really hard to end suffering faster so that it doesn't take centuries more of this before we see equality. So I think for me, that's potentially my beacon of hope. But like, I think that unfortunately, the sort of hopeless tone at the end of this article is probably like, accurate, realistic, ultimately. And that's not to say that I don't think that this work is extraordinarily important, because it is, and we need to do it, because if we don't do it, it's never going to be good for anyone, (laughs) ever. But, like, I think that for the generations of Black people who are alive right now and for their kids and stuff, like, we can only hope for better right now. And that's what we're fighting for. That's what they're fighting for and what I'm doing my best to personally support, you know? I think that's where I end up on that. So in terms of action, Maggie and I have both been doing personal work to figure out what action means to us. And a lot of what, and I, a lot of our friends have as well, I'm sure a lot of you are as well, a lot of what it has been, a lot of what I've seen online is things that Gay mentions in her article, you know, fundraising, mutual aid, supporting Black-owned businesses. And stuff like that. And she says, and I quote. These are all lovely ideas and they demonstrate good intentions, but we can only do so much. The disparities that normally fracture our culture are becoming even more pronounced as we decide collectively what we choose to save, what deserves to be saved. And so... I guess I wanted to know more about your perspective on that because one person (laughs) is not capable of changing an entire government. We can try and we can give all of our efforts in. And I think that like on a personal level, it's, it feels good to me to take these small individualized actions, right? Like every bit counts, right? That's what I keep telling myself in order to cope with this. But how do we work to dismantle this on a systematic level. And it doesn't mean that we just like more of us keep doing these individualized actions. I don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer to any of these questions, (laughs) obviously. But I think that there's potentially two paths that need to be walked simultaneously here. And that we need to keep doing these little actions, right? Because things are going to change if we don't support Black people and their livelihoods and things like that. And if we don't continuously unlearn racism forever and then call more people into doing that work within themselves as well. 
But I think also on bigger levels, we need to be fighting really hard for things like defunding the police and really systematic changes and like fighting for the revolution, essentially, you know? Because until these systems actually change, it's going to be hard to have any forward momentum or progress that isn't just like band-aiding the situation. And that's why the protests haven't stopped, even though four cops have been charged, right? Like, especially when you look at things like, today is June 5th. We are recording on Brianna Taylor's birthday. She would have been 27 today. Her loss is incalculable, because every loss is incalculable. And there has been no justice served there, you know? Like, there is a lot of panicked band-aiding efforts, I think, happening all across the country right now by our leadership. Minneapolis is looking into defunding, into disbanding the police. Oh yeah, did you not see that? Yeah. There, 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 I did they, not. There's calls here in Seattle to potentially kick SPD out of their labor union. Because What's SPD? Have, Seattle Police Department. Okay. Because they haven't held up their end of the bargain about doing real anti-racist work. And I think a lot of people are treating this as like, A, a new idea. And it's not, especially when you look at the history of the police as an organization that was created specifically to protect white people from, protect white people and white property, essentially, from newly freed black people, right? Like, so, and also the fact that like, when people say we're going to defund and disband the police, they're not saying tomorrow, right? Like, instantly, they're saying we have to systematically change the way that we think about treating people everywhere. I was reading an article earlier, which I'll link, that was talking about the fact that we expect police officers to deal with every single social societal issue that we have. We expect them to suddenly become kind, compassionate, caring social workers in almost every situation. And the tools that we give them to do that work are violence. Mm -hmm. That's it. And when we start thinking about the world through that lens, I think, I don't know, to me, it just becomes so clear that, like, it's not the way forward, that we have to take care of all members of our community, especially Black people, but, like, and violence isn't the way that you do that. Jail time isn't the way that you do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because we are a feminist podcast, I want to point out that violence and Patriarchy and hierarchy and the tools that are instituted to enforce hierarchy do seem inherently anti-feminist, right? Like if we lived in a truly feminist society, we would live in a society that is based off of radical empathy. So things like this ideally would not be happening because there wouldn't be any goddamn hierarchy and we'd all be empathetic rather than using our fists or guns or military grade weapons to solve problems. Yeah, yeah. I also wanted to clarify, Maggie was talking about defunding the police, and she got a little bit into what that means. But a lot of that means, I mean, yeah, it can mean completely disbanding the police. I don't know how much, (laughs) I don't know how much people are going to go for that in the country. It could happen. Apparently, it's been proposed in Minneapolis, which is crazy because we still see crazy videos coming out of Minneapolis of incredible police violence. Yeah, I don't know what the exact status is of it, but their city council has been 
talking about it publicly at least i don't know if there's been any sort of actual like legislation moved or anything it's just like out there as an idea okay yeah but people are calling for defunding the police and that doesn't necessarily mean like we're going to stop paying police officers a lot of that means that we're not going to provide police with military-grade equipment, which we get passed down right now in our country. The military is able to pass down equipment, but they're not using two police departments. And police departments are meant to deal with citizens, so that means that military-grade equipment is being enacted on citizens. Yeah, for sure. And then also, as part of that, it also means using... I think in the ideal world and a lot of what the proposals I've seen have been is that then taking those hundreds of millions of dollars and directing them to programs that deal with all of those social and political problems that police officers are expected to be dealing with um, and strengthening those social programs. Um, Yeah. I just want to see the police disbanded, but (laughs) you're absolutely absolutely right that like everyone who is out here talking about defunding the police right now is not talking about just like making them go poof. Right. And that would not be an ideal situation in any way, shape or form, uh, no matter what change that we see. No, we could just like, we could just enact restorative justice in which case like we wouldn't need police officers or we could take away police weaponry and do what a lot of other countries do and give them like batons or something. It seems to work for a lot of other people. We know that when police have weapons, the communities that they so call, like the communities they're supposed to protect also then gain further weapons. And so it just creates more violence. Like the less weaponry that the police has, the less weaponry that they're for like criminal or criminal organizations carry because they don't need it yeah yeah <laughs> sorry i it's just, there's just like so much to to think about and to unpack here right like this isn't obviously just a one-time conversation especially because we've had explicit conversations like this before on the podcast we will continue to for the future and also in our lives but like there's just there's just so much change that needs to happen that it sometimes i think feels insurmountable but like <laughs> it's going to happen because it has to happen i think at this point it's just how long we're going to drag it out before it actually happens right like by we i mean our predominantly like white legislators who currently actually have the power to uh create that systemic change yes and in order to do that we do need the people more united than they are even right now like I know that I haven't spoken up for Black lives to this degree at all in my life. And I think I see a lot of other people who I didn't know anything about their political leavings now also speaking up. So I think that's good and that's a start, but we need to continue this momentum and keep going. And we need more. We need more people on our side. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And I think that we also need to acknowledge the fact that like we're 400 years late to this party as a you know like a collective society but then also like this is this is stuff that we could have been doing for years right like you know like the first time this happened five years ago in ferguson missouri well not the first time in the sense of like the first time of police brutality but like with the extreme and intense riots and things like that yeah in our modern era yeah in my lifetime i should say (laughs) well with like the hashtags and stuff like the hashtag activism 
And I think that's where the movement of Black Lives Matter may have came about as well. Is that true? I think it is true. I think though that something that's also worth talking about here is performative activism versus actual activism. This is something Harmony and I have been talking about a lot just in general because believe it or not we're actually friends in real life and we talk about lots of this stuff just generally speaking and the role that social media can or can't play within that whereas there's a lot of pressure I think to outwardly perform your activism to show solidarity and support but then there's also in a lot of cases like no action taken in people's actual lives to support any of that performance and there's a real tension there that I see where I think that a lot of people associate the idea that white silence equals white complicity specifically with social media and I don't think that's <laughs> what it actually means you know like we I read an, a really interesting article that was written by Courtney Ariel in 2017 for called for our white friends desiring to be allies and she says Listen more, talk less. You don't have to say something all of the time. You don't have to post something on social media that points to how liberal, how aware, how cool, how good you are. You are lovely, human, and amazing. You've also had the microphone for most of the time, for a very long time, and it will be good to give the microphone to someone else who is living a different experience than your own. So, like, on the one hand, social media has been a really powerful tool of I think spreading awareness social media is one of the only places that are accurately reporting currently about protests and what's actually happening but then it's also become a really powerful silencer as well because of performative activism and that's a line and attention that I'm I feel like I'm walking and navigating all the time and should be walking and navigating all of the time you know I think that there's this real there's this dream out there about like the good white people you know and so much of this work is accepting the fact that like that is a dream and that like when we talk about racism it means yes me it means yes you it means all of us who are implicit who are complicit in this kind of simply by existing in a society where all of this context has already occurred you know and i don't know what to do with that tension in myself Right? Like, I think I've just settled on the fact that, like, I'm always open to learn more. And I have the receipts if they ever need to be proven, you know? Which, I mean, I doubt they ever will. But if it's ever necessary, I could. So, like, I think I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and try and shut the fuck up more often you know because like it's not about me and what I'm doing specifically I also think part of that is like I mean Maggie and I are women right and so we are we're white women and so we're very socialized to be good girls right we we really want people to like us and that is true not just for white women but for people everywhere and in particular white people I'd say I also read an article by Britt Bennett on Jezebel called I Don't Know What to Do with Good White People. That really spoke to me and kind of called me out as a human. Have you read any of her novels? Sorry. No, I didn't know she was a novelist. 
Yeah, she wrote a really great book a couple of years ago called The Mothers, which I just read. And she has a new one coming out that I actually made my book of the month this month that I can't remember right now, but is about the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which she couldn't have known when she was writing this, you know, probably like a year and a half ago that it was going to come out. (laughs) Well, it did, but it really just feels so timely. Anyways, continue. I highly suggest her work if you haven't checked her out. That's great, especially because a lot of people right now are looking to read the the work for from Black authors, like a lot of us readers. Yeah, so this article, there's an image attached to it on Jezebel, and it shows a one of those walking signs, and it's a woman, and she is dark-colored, and a white woman is coming up from above, but she's stepping on a dark-colored black, or a dark-colored man in order to reach for the hand of the dark colored woman. And I feel like that really encapsulated what people mean when they say good white people, right? So like when we're doing performative action, a lot of it comes from our need to have other people approve of what we're doing. And so what Maggie's talking about there is like, if we put a Black Lives Matter filter on our Facebook picture, right? And that's the end of our action. That's problematic. And the problem too with like Black Lives Matter Facebook profile filters or like a black screen. That was a movement that happened that got a lot of press on social media. It doesn't, it it shows up on everyone's feeds. And so that is what they see instead of like resources, which have been really helpful for me personally. And I think for a lot of other people, especially for people who are looking to like protest or looking to do some sort of sustainable action, right? Like a lot of the resources are being distributed on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. So yeah, I think that we need to keep in mind when we're asking whether something is performative or not, whether we're doing it just so that people will, or like whether we're doing it because we want people to know that we're anti-racist, right? Versus I'm signing this petition and I'm sharing it so that you guys can also sign. And when we do look at things like signing petitions, we need to be sure to source them and to make sure that they're actual or like when we donate money, this is just a good idea in general. Like we need to make sure that they're actually going to the right places and to causes that we support and that are worthy. And in the case of Black Lives Matter, we want it to be led by people of color, primarily black people. (laughs) Yeah. For sure. Yeah, that was interesting. Gay kind of talks a little bit. She calls out white people a little bit in her article. She says something like, Black people share the truth of their lives and white people treat those truths as intellectual exercises. Actually, wait, let me go back to the good white people thing. (laughs) What I think is important, too, when we're like thinking about good white people is that we may be we may have good intentions, which is what Bennett talks about in her article. Right. But we're not acting on them and we're not recognizing that in order for us to like help somebody, we are stepping on the backs of black people to do black people to do it. I think that's my general conclusion. And I'm open to being corrected if someone wants to give me a more insightful version of that. But my idea is that like these people, while they may be well intentioned, they're not recognizing race in a comprehensive and helpful way. Yeah, for sure. And I think also it's important to 
understand the fact that like that deep need that deep-seated need to be liked and approved of and, and vindicated like that lives within all of us i feel like the good white people thing is something that i like personally have to deconstruct for myself Me every too. day constantly <laughs> you know like i'm not trying to say like this is a problem that's happening to white people over there right like this is something that i struggle with and understanding the place where like my activism becomes performative versus when it isn't and stuff like that like this is all stuff that i'm thinking about every day you know which is how you learn right like it's okay yeah that's that's something that we should be doing like it's not i don't know because i did something racist maybe not like not shooting people because you should feel really guilty about that but because i may have said something insensitive five years ago that doesn't mean that i need to hate myself now it just means that i need to like learn and grow and that's that's what that means. Like it means constantly evaluating and thinking about things and trying to have a nuanced perspective. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, right? Like Harmony and I don't have any answers here, right? Like it's all just sort of thoughts, but they're thoughts that I think more people in the world should be thinking about. And that's why I think we decided ultimately to make this podcast episode because active conversations that reflect on you and your values are just like really important to have about everything you believe in you know you want to go back to that quote that you were talking about because i think that roxanne gay does a really great job of contextualizing that problem yeah black people share the truth of their lives and white people treat those truths as intellectual exercises so in the context that she used that in she meant that people then come out with rebuttals to experience ex- experience. And I get that because I've been one of those people that has come out to rebuttal experience. But also like even in this podcast, even though I'm empathetic, I feel like my understanding of the Black experience has been an intellectual exercise. And it's been something that we've talked about in college and stuff. And to a certain extent, I think that is healthy because I think that, you know, you need to think about things intelligently and you need to like train yourself to think in certain ways, but it also feels deeply exploitative. And I think that's what gay may be getting at. Yeah. I honestly, I read that and I thought about it and I was like, well, that's kind of exactly what we're about to do because we don't have <laughs> this lived ex- right. Like, cause like we don't have this lived experience and we can never truly understand and therefore wrapping your mind around it becomes wrapping your mind around it because you can never wrap your body around it you can't change that so like I think that she's absolutely I don't know I just think that she's absolutely right and like it's it's just attention I think in some of this work that needs to be thought about more and talked about more yeah she also has this part of the article that, like, because it's an intellectual venture, you would think that there would be solutions coming out, but there, but there isn't, you know? So she says... Some white people act as if there are two sides to racism, as if racists are people we need to reason with. They fret over the destruction of property and want everyone to just get along. They struggle to understand why Black people are rioting, but offer no alternatives about what a people should do about a lifetime of rage, disempowerment, and injustice. So, like, on top of all of that, it's an intellectual venture that ends in complicity still. It ends with, like, the status quo. And, like, I think that's 
going back to our previous conversation about like where the line of empathy ends is like racists aren't people to be reasoned with they're people who have thoughts that need to be reformed yeah because if you're reasoning with somebody like they're you're 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 inherently giving their argument some value yeah yeah and then they're they're going to work harder to try and reason and justify their argument for themselves. Yeah. Which is problematic because we can, we can, there have been studies that show that humans when confronted with a debate to something that they believe in will jump through hoops in their brains to like justify what they believe and then that becomes further reinforced because they've already jumped through those hoops yeah yeah (laughs) so (laughs) sorry i don't have anything intelligent to say to that except for the fact that like i think that this is why sometimes anti-racism work feels complicated enough that people just don't do it and then also stay complicit you know that's what i did for years (laughs) i think i think it's because I think there's a level at which people feel like they don't want to do more harm by trying to help and failing. Mm-hmm. So then they end up just doing, you know, implicit, complicit harm by saying nothing. I mean, Court- Courtney Ariel from the article that you pulled had a good point about that. If you want to read it about... Above all, I urge you, keep trying. You're going to make mistakes. Expect this, but keep showing up. Be compassionate. Lead with empathy. Always keep learning and growing. If you do this, I truly believe you'll be doing the work of an ally. Yeah. Because it's important to show up and do it. And everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has those days. (laughs) Hannah Montana told us. I think you're showing your white girl, Maggie. (laughs) Yeah, but that's kind of what we were saying earlier. Like, we don't need... I don't know. I personally really struggle with white guilt because I am so incredibly uncomfortable with the, the fact that I have so much privilege. And that has and does lead me into silence a lot, right? Because I don't know what the right thing is. But... A part of dealing with that privilege is getting over myself and just kind of trying, right? And like amplifying the voices, amplifying other people's voices that aren't like my own. So yeah, like don't hate yourself because your beliefs are evolving. It's okay to evolve. Yeah. yeah. Evolving is good. Change That's what is we want. Good. No, I totally get that, though. Like, even when we were talking about making this podcast episode, right, like, I was scared to do it because it comes back to that likability factor, right? And, like, what if we say the wrong thing? And, like, is this even really something that we should be talking about? And I think that ultimately I came to the conclusion that, like, it is something that we should be talking about because this is, that's the whole point, right? Like, is that you have to talk to the people about it in your life. And we have- you're all in our life. Yeah, and we have this, like, small but- but cool little platform that we get to use and stuff and like yeah you know sometimes you just gotta do it (laughs) that's true that's true so let's let's um do you want to try and wrap up with resources 
Yeah, so Harmony and I have been posting resources pretty much every day on our Instagram RGBC pod that we have there. There's going to be resources linked below. I think that a really great resource is the article that we've talking that we've been talking about for our white friends desiring to be allies. But there's lots of different ways to protest. Like especially I think in a pandemic, it's really important to like emphasize that that like just it's just true that not every single person who wants to help can be out on the street right now. And it's also important to call your representatives and to have difficult conversations with your friends and family if they need to happen. And to use social media and things like that to boost black voices and to use your K-pop fan cams exactly. to flood the lines. Oh my god, doing that made my heart feel so happy. I was just like, yes, and you get Tim Taehung, and you get Tim Taehung. It was a beautiful moment. There's all kinds of ways to protest and to do it well and smartly. Yeah, I agree. I think that, you know, it's hard. I'm not working full-time right now, right? So I have all the time in the world to fret about the state of everything and to look up 10 million articles and organizations but not everyone does, right? And it is overwhelming when you don't know where to start. So I think also donations are really helpful if you have the money to do so. Yeah, just doing the research. And there are a lot of great resource lists out there. If you are, if you lack time, right? Make sure it's by, vetted by someone you trust and you want to go just like sign 20 petitions. Or another great thing to do is um, to passively donate. There's a whole slew of really great YouTube videos right now uh, that are being made by Black people talking talking about everything that's happening, but all of the AdSense are being, you know, donated directly to Black Lives Matter movements and uh, things like that. We should link a few of those. Yeah, I definitely will. So, like, if you even if you don't have those kinds of resources, right, like, you can always play that in the background, you know? But if you do that, make sure that you disable your ad blocker and that you watch something else after every, like, three to four times that you do it. Otherwise, YouTube will mark you as spam and you don't count anymore. Um, Good to know. Because I have not, that's an action I haven't done yet, but I always have ad blocker. So thanks, Maggie. Yeah, you're welcome. So, yeah, Harmony and I will essentially just, like, link a fuck ton of resources in the description of this and it will not be complete because it's just impossible to be complete but like if you are somebody who wants to take action and doesn't know how or needs ideas for like different kinds of actions that you could be taking as well there'll be some options in this episode description yes i also have i I did it in our last uh episode description too but for myself i have created a resource list of things that i'm finding and i haven't been able to link everything in there But this is stuff that I have vetted and I think is worthwhile. So we will continue to post that. And that is also on all of our socials as well. Yeah, on our link tree. Yeah, on our link tree. It's called Anti-Racism Action Resources. And we list other lists up top that are more in-depth and probably better informed than ours as well, which you should probably look at. (laughs) What are you reading right now, Maggie? (laughs) What am I reading right now? I am reading Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler. I am reading, what's this one called? Uh, The Book of Longings by Sue Monk Kidd, another thing that we're going to read next season. And I am still reading War and Fucking Peace. (laughs) 
I understand. I feel like now that we're in COVID and we have all of these protests going on and I've been a little bit more woke to the world, I'm having even more trouble reading. And so I have like five different books up on cue depending on my needs and mood. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like for me, reading has been like a really sort of a hit or miss hobby. I read... I read almost a book a day in April, and I read, like, three things in May. So, it really, it's really ebbing and flowing there, you know? And now, especially, I'm, I always try and prioritize making sure that I'm reading as diversely as possible, but, like, I feel like right now, especially, it's really important. And especially because I'm somebody who really struggles with nonfiction, I'm trying to make sure that, like, my, my fiction reading especially is, like, really diverse, as well as sort of bucking up and just like reading the nonfiction that I need to read of course but yeah I don't know it reading just feels hard right now <laughs> it is hard it's just it's- unfortunate we run a book podcast <laughs> well we're reading for the podcast at least for me who reads much less than you like that's kind of what keeps me going you know I'm like well at least I'm reading <laughs> yeah for sure Right now, I am reading a few things. So before all of this came up, I had started reading Shades of Milk and Honey by Mary Robinette Kowal, and I'm still slowly but surely trudging along with that. And then I've started reading They Can't Kill Us All by Wesley Lowry, which is a journalist's perspective of... I had it up. It's the, the subtitle is Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. And that's been pretty helpful as well. And then I've, I'm also reading Revolution in Rojava, Democratic Autonomy and Women's Liberation in Syrian Kurdistan by Michael Knapp Anna, I think I'm pronouncing her name right, Anja Flock and Erkan Ayaboga. Ayaboga. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the mispronunciations. And it's translated by Janet Beale. And the foreword is by David Graeber. And I am, for comfort's sake, reading uh, or audiobooking Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by J.K. Rowling. That's my favorite of the Harry Potter books. It really just makes me happy. Really? Mine's the fifth one because that's when we meet Luna Lovegood and also Dumbledore's army. And also I think Umbridge is like the best villain. You know, like she's really, really hateable. Yeah, she is really hateable. I don't know. I think I just love a good competition, you know, just like a good old fashioned competition. I've read that book so many times that my copy is in two halves. (laughs) Oh, I have a few books like that that have split, but that's because I'm not very nice to my poor books. Yeah. Uh, Homework? I feel like this whole episode was homework. We finally did our homework, you guys. (laughs) Uh, not in the sense that, like, it was bad or tedious or anything, but just in the sense that, like, there's just so much work to be done actively doing it. I don't think that I want to share any specific homework this week because I don't want to be out here just kind of, like, showing off what a good white person I am. Um, but I will say that Harmony and I, in many ways in our life, have become in- <laughs> informal accountability partners to each other. So I'll message you afterwards to talk about a couple of things that I plan on doing this week, and then I'll check in with you next week uh, so that you can know that I've done them, because oh. accountability is an important thing. That's good. That's good. I will do the same with you, Maggie. What are we talking about next week? Is it Andrea Gibson? Next week is Andrea Gibson. Yeah. Okay. 
So that is a poet, spoken word poetry. It is Pride Month, and that doesn't have to be overshadowed by these Black Lives uh, Matter protests because Pride was started by the Stonewall Riots, which was led by a Black trans woman. Hell yeah, man. It's all it's all just together, you know? They're all married. Uh, and that's why intersectionality is important. <laughs> People aren't just one thing. That is true. That is true. Yeah. So continue the continue deconstructing comrades. Yes. Fuck the patriarchy. Fuck racism. Is that all? Eat folks? the rich. Eat the rich. We're sorry for our moderate listeners, but whatever. It is what no, it is. Not. Fuck hierarchy. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. You can follow us at Rebel Girls Book Club on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Days. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Oh,